Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Jennifer Egan reads from Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth. To learn more from Egan about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, read by Jennifer Egan. I'm Jennifer Egan, and I'm going to read the first part of Chapter 3 of The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton, published in 1905. Chapter 3. Bridge at Bellamont usually lasted till the small hours, and when Lily went to bed that night, she had played too long for her own good. Feeling no desire for the self-communion which awaited her in her room, she lingered on the broad stairway, looking down into the hall below, where the last card players were grouped about the tray of tall glasses and silver-collared decanters, which the butler had just placed on a low table near the fire. The hall was arcaded, with a gallery supported on columns of pale yellow marble. Tall clumps of flowering plants were grouped against a background of dark foliage in the angles of the walls. On the crimson carpet, a deerhound and two or three spaniels dozed luxuriously before the fire, and the light from the great central lantern overhead shed a brightness on the women's hair and struck sparks from their jewels as they moved. There were moments when such scenes delighted Lily, when they gratified her sense of beauty and her craving for the external finish of life. There were others when they gave a sharper edge to the meagerness of her own opportunities. This was one of the moments when the sense of contrast was uppermost, and she turned away impatiently as Mrs. George Dorset, glittering in serpentine spangles, drew Percy Grice in her wake to a confidential nook beneath the gallery. It was not that Miss Bart was afraid of losing her newly acquired hold over Mr. Grice. Mrs. Dorset might startle or dazzle him, but she had neither the skill nor the patience to effect his capture. She was too self-engrossed to penetrate the recesses of his shyness. And besides, why should she care to give herself the trouble? At most, it might amuse her to make sport of his simplicity for an evening. After that, he would merely be a burden to her, and knowing this, she was far too experienced to encourage him. But the mere thought of that other woman, who could take a man up and toss him aside as she willed, without having to regard him as a possible factor in her plans, filled Lily Bart with envy. She had been bored all the afternoon by Percy Grice. The mere thought seemed to waken an echo of his droning voice, but she could not ignore him on the morrow. She must follow up her success, must submit to more boredom, must be ready with fresh compliances and adaptabilities, and all on the bare chance that he might ultimately decide to do her the honor of boring her for life. It was a hateful fate, but how to escape from it? What choice had she? To be herself or a Gertie Farish? As she entered her bedroom with its softly shaded lights, her lace dressing gown lying across the silken bedspread, her little embroidered slippers by the fire, a vase of carnations filling the air with perfume, and the last novels and magazines lying uncut on a table beside the reading lamp, 
She had a vision of Miss Farish's cramped flat with its cheap conveniences and hideous wallpapers. No, she was not made for mean and shabby surroundings, for the squalid compromises of poverty. Her whole being dilated in an atmosphere of luxury. It was the background she required, the only climate she could breathe in. But the luxury of others was not what she wanted. A few years ago, it had sufficed her. She had taken her daily meed of pleasure without caring who provided it. Now she was beginning to chafe at the obligations it imposed, to feel herself a mere pensioner on the splendor which had once seemed to belong to her. There were even moments when she was conscious of having to pay her way. For a long time, she had refused to play bridge. She knew she could not afford it, and she was afraid of acquiring so expensive a taste. She had seen the danger exemplified in more than one of her associates, in young Ned Silverton, for instance, the charming fair boy now seated in abject rapture at the elbow of Mrs. Fisher, a striking divorcee with eyes and gowns as emphatic as the headlines of her case. Lily could remember when young Silverton had stumbled into their circle, with the air of a strayed Arcadian who has published charming sonnets in his college journal. Since then, he had developed a taste for Mrs. Fisher and Bridge, and the latter, at least, had involved him in expenses from which he had been more than once rescued by harassed maiden sisters who treasured the sonnets and went without sugar in their tea to keep their darling afloat. Ned's case was familiar to Lily, she had seen his charming eyes, which had a good deal more poetry in them than the sonnets, change from surprise to amusement and from amusement to anxiety as he passed under the spell of the terrible god of chance, and she was afraid of discovering the same symptoms in her own case. For in the past year, she had found that her hostesses expected her to take a place at the card table. It was one of the taxes she had to pay for their prolonged hospitality and for the dresses and trinkets which occasionally replenished her insufficient wardrobe. And since she had played regularly, the passion had grown on her. Once or twice of late, she had won a large sum and instead of keeping it against future losses, had spent it in dress or jewelry. And the desire to atone for this imprudence combined with the increasing exhilaration of the game, drove her to risk higher stakes at each fresh venture. She tried to excuse herself on the plea that, in the Trenor set, if one played at all, one must either play high or be set down as priggish or stingy. But she knew that the gambling passion was upon her, and that in her present surroundings there was small hope of resisting it. Tonight, the luck had been persistently bad, and the little gold purse which hung among her trinkets was almost empty when she returned to her room. She unlocked the wardrobe, and taking out her jewel case, looked under the tray for the roll of bills from which she had replenished the purse before going down to dinner. Only $20 were left. The discovery was so startling that for a moment she fancied she must have been robbed. Then she took paper and pencil and, seating herself at the writing table, tried to reckon up what she had spent during the day. 
Her head was throbbing with fatigue, and she had to go over the figures again and again, but at last it became clear to her that she had lost $300 at cards. She took out her checkbook to see if her balance was larger than she remembered, but found she had erred in the other direction. Then she returned to her calculations, but figure as she would, she could not conjure back the vanished $300. It was the sum she had set aside to pacify her dressmaker, unless she should decide to use it as a sop to the jeweler. At any rate, she had so many uses for it that its very insufficiency had caused her to play high in the hope of doubling it. But of course, she had lost she who needed every penny, while Bertha Dorset, whose husband showered money on her, must have pocketed at least 500, and Julie Trenner, who could have afforded to lose a thousand a night, had left the table clutching such a heap of bills that she had been unable to shake hands with her guests when they bade her good night. A world in which such things could be seemed a miserable place to Lily Bart. But then she had never been able to understand the laws of a universe which was so ready to leave her out of its calculations. She began to undress without ringing for her maid, whom she had sent to bed. She had been long enough in bondage to other people's pleasure to be considerate of those who depended on hers, and in her bitter moods it sometimes struck her that she and her maid were in the same position, except that the latter received her wages more regularly. As she sat before the mirror, brushing her hair, her face looked hollow and pale, and she was frightened by two little lines near her mouth, faint flaws in the smooth curve of the cheek. Oh, I must stop worrying, she exclaimed. Unless it's the electric light, she reflected, springing up from her seat and lighting the candles on the dressing table. She turned out the wall lights and peered at herself between the candle flames. The white oval of her face swam out waveringly from a background of shadows, the uncertain light blurring it like a haze, but the two lines about the mouth remained. Lily rose and undressed in haste. It is only because I am tired and have such odious things to think about, she kept repeating, and it seemed an added injustice that petty cares should leave a trace on the beauty which was her only defense against them. But the odious things were there and remained with her. She returned wearily to the thought of Percy Grice as a wayfarer picks up a heavy load and toils after a brief rest. She was almost sure she had landed him. A few days' work and she would win her reward. But the reward itself seemed unpalatable just then. She could get no zest from the thought of victory. It would be a rest from worry, no more and how little that would have seemed to her a few years earlier. Her ambitions had shrunk gradually in the desiccating air of failure. But why had she failed? Was it her own fault or that of destiny? She remembered how her mother, after they had lost their money, used to say to her with a kind of fierce vindictiveness, but you'll get it all back. You'll get it all back with your face. The remembrance roused a whole train of association, and she lay in the darkness reconstructing the past out of which her present had grown. A house in which no one ever dined at home unless there was company, a doorbell perpetually ringing, 
a hall table showered with square envelopes, which were opened in haste, and oblong envelopes, which were allowed to gather dust in the depths of a bronze jar. A series of French and English maids giving warning amid a chaos of hurriedly ransacked wardrobes and dress closets, an equally changing dynasty of nurses and footmen, quarrels in the pantry, the kitchen, and the drawing room, precipitate trips to Europe, and returns with gorged trunks and days of interminable unpacking, semi-annual discussions as to where the summer should be spent, gray interludes of economy, and brilliant reactions of expense. Such was the setting of Lily Bart's first memories. Ruling the turbulent element called home was the vigorous and determined figure of a mother still young enough to dance her ball dresses to rags, while the hazy outline of a neutral-tinted father filled an intermediate space between the butler and the man who came to wind the clocks. Even to the eyes of infancy, Mrs. Hudson Bart had appeared young, but Lily could not recall the time when her father had not been bald and slightly stooping, with streaks of gray in his hair and a tired walk. It was a shock to her to learn afterward that he was but two years older than her mother. Lily seldom saw her father by daylight. All day he was downtown, and in winter it was long after nightfall when she heard his fagged step on the stairs and his hand on the schoolroom door. He would kiss her in silence and ask one or two questions of the nurse or the governess. Then Mrs. Bart's maid would come to remind him that he was dining out, and he would hurry away with a nod to Lily. In summer, when he joined them for a Sunday at Newport or Southampton, he was even more effaced and silent than in winter. It seemed to tire him to rest, and he would sit for hours staring at the sea line from a quiet corner of the veranda while the clatter of his wife's existence went on unheeded a few feet off. Generally, however, Mrs. Bart and Lily went to Europe for the summer, and before the steamer was halfway over, Mr. Bart had dipped below the horizon. Sometimes his daughter heard him denounced for having neglected to forward Mrs. Bart's remittances. But for the most part, he was never mentioned or thought of till his patient, stooping figure presented itself on the New York dock as a buffer between the magnitude of his wife's luggage and the restrictions of the American Custom House. Lily was 19 when circumstances caused her to revise her view of the universe. The previous year, she had made a dazzling debut, fringed by a heavy thundercloud of bills. The light of the debut still lingered on the horizon, but the cloud had thickened, and suddenly it broke. The suddenness added to the horror. There were still times when Lily relived with painful vividness every detail of the day on which the blow fell. She and her mother had been seated at the luncheon table over the chauffeur and cold salmon of the previous night's dinner. It was one of Mrs. Bart's few economies to consume in private the expensive remnants of her hospitality. Lily was feeling the pleasant languor, which is youth's penalty for dancing till dawn, but her mother, in spite of a few lines about the mouth and under the yellow waves on her temples, was as alert, determined, and high in color as if she had risen from an untroubled sleep. 
In the center of the table, between the melting marron glacé and candied cherries, a pyramid of American beauties lifted their vigorous stems. They held their heads as high as Mrs. Bart, but their rose color had turned to a dissipated purple, and Lily's sense of fitness was disturbed by their reappearance on the luncheon table. I really think, Mother, she said reproachfully, we might afford a few fresh flowers for luncheon, just some jonquils or lilies of the valley. Mrs. Bart stared. Her own fastidiousness had its eye fixed on the world, and she did not care how the luncheon table looked when there was no one present at it but the family. But she smiled at her daughter's innocence. Lilies of the valley, she said calmly, cost two dollars a dozen at this season. Lily was not impressed. She knew very little of the value of money. It would not take more than six dozen to fill that bowl, she argued. Six dozen what? asked her father's voice in the doorway. The two women looked up in surprise. Though it was a Saturday, the sight of Mr. Bard at luncheon was an unwanted one. But neither his wife nor his daughter was sufficiently interested to ask an explanation. Mr. Bart dropped into a chair and sat gazing absently at the fragment of jellied salmon which the butler had placed before him. I was only saying, Lily began, that I hate to see faded flowers at luncheon, and Mother says a bunch of lilies of the valley would not cost more than twelve dollars. Mayn't I tell the florist to send a few every day? She leaned confidently toward her father. He seldom refused her anything, and Mrs. Bart had taught her to plead with him when her own entreaties failed. Mr. Bart sat motionless, his gaze still fixed on the salmon, and his lower jaw dropped. He looked even paler than usual, and his thin hair lay in untidy streaks on his forehead. Suddenly, he looked at his daughter and laughed. The laugh was so strange that Lily colored under it. She disliked being ridiculed, and her father seemed to see something ridiculous in the request. Perhaps he thought it foolish that she should trouble him about such a trifle. Twelve dollars, twelve dollars a day for flowers? Oh, certainly, my dear. Give him an order for twelve hundred. He continued to laugh. Mrs. Bart gave him a quick glance. You needn't wait, Polworth. I will ring for you," she said to the butler. The butler withdrew with an air of silent disapproval, leaving the remains of the chauffeur on the sideboard. "What is the matter, Hudson? Are you ill?" said Mrs. Bart severely. She had no tolerance for scenes which were not of her own making, and it was odious to her that her husband should make a show of himself before the servants. "Are you ill?" she repeated. "Ill." No, I'm ruined," he said. Lily made a frightened sound, and Mrs. Bart rose to her feet. "Ruined!" she cried. But controlling herself instantly, she turned a calm face to Lily. "Shut the pantry door," she said. Lily obeyed, and when she turned back into the room, her father was sitting with both elbows on the table, the plate of salmon between them, and his head bowed on his hands. Mrs. Bart stood over him with a white face, which made her hair unnaturally yellow. She looked at Lily as the latter approached. Her look was terrible, but her voice was modulated to a ghastly cheerfulness. "Your father is not well. He doesn't know what he is saying. It is nothing. You had better go upstairs and don't talk to the servants," she added. 
Lily obeyed. She always obeyed when her mother spoke in that voice. She had not been deceived by Mrs. Bart's words. She knew at once that they were ruined. In the dark hours which followed, that awful fact overshadowed even her father's slow and difficult dying. To his wife, he no longer counted. He had become extinct when he ceased to fulfill his purpose, and she sat at his side with the provisional air of a traveler who waits for a belated train to start. Lily's feelings were softer. She pitied him in a frightened, ineffectual way. But the fact that he was, for the most part, unconscious, and that his attention, when she stole into the room, drifted away from her after a moment, made him even more of a stranger than in the nursery days when he had never come home till after dark. She seemed always to have seen him through a blur, first of sleepiness, then of distance and indifference, and now the fog had thickened till he was almost indistinguishable. If she could have performed any little services for him, or have exchanged with him a few of those affecting words which an extensive perusal of fiction had led her to connect with such occasions, the filial instinct might have stirred in her. But her pity, finding no active expression, remained in a state of spectatorship, overshadowed by her mother's grim, unflagging resentment. Every look and act of Mrs. Bartz seemed to say, you are sorry for him now, but you will feel differently when you see what he has done to us. It was a relief to Lily when her father died. Nine Two Wise Read By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Underberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Wise Read By wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit 92y.org/helpnow to donate to support Nine Two Y and our new digital programming. Thank you, and thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org slash redby.